I bring you good news of great joy. That's for all people, everybody. Unto us is born a Savior. You ever gotten something at Christmas that you didn't want? Well, my wife has, but she's never said anything. It was always the thing she wanted. I've just never seen it again after she put it away. Growing up Dutch as I did, gifts were nothing if not practical. And so uh, the thing that we got from my father mostly was always this practical thing we're supposed to be able to use, but we didn't always want it. One year, it was the case of motor oil. (laughs) Thanks. This is good. Uh, One year, it was a six-foot aluminum stepladder. I didn't say anything, but I did try to load it in my little Honda Accord. It did not fit. And I wondered all the way home why I needed a stepladder. I can reach every light in my house. (laughs) Still, we wouldn't say anything. We would try to fake a little gratitude and... and, uh, And hopefully we'd send dad home thinking like he had just nailed it. This was his magnum opus gift, and that was really it. So think about one that maybe you've received from somebody. If the person next to you is the one that gave it to you, don't tell them that. Make up another one. But maybe take about 30 seconds. Try to locate that gift that you want or that you got that you didn't want. Now, you didn't mean you hated it. It just meant when you got it, you were like, "Mm, what am I going to do with this? It felt like a case of motor oil. Go ahead, turn to the person next to you and tell them that worst gift ever. I hear groanings. <laughs> those are some bad ideas. It's good, good, good. I won't ask you to say those out loud. On the night Jesus was born, the story's familiar to us. The shepherds, who were the working poor, were out in the fields at around two in the morning. They were interrupted by one visitor who started by saying, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that's for everybody. Unto you is born today a Savior who is Christ, the anointed one, the Lord. And this will be a sign. You will find this child wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger. Before they could collect themselves, there was a choir of celestial beings standing all around them. And they started singing and shouting, glory to God in heaven and peace to everyone on earth. And when the shepherds heard this, they looked at each other and said, we better go off to Bethlehem and and see for ourselves. Now, not being theologians, they had less to unlearn. And so they went off to Bethlehem at least half believing this, but they had to be at least 
startled by the message because it doesn't make a ton of sense. Yet when they went to Bethlehem, they saw Joseph and Mary and the child laying in the manger. And when they saw them, they were overjoyed and they went and they told everyone that they saw everything they had heard and everything they'd seen. And what was it that they heard? Two things. One, a Savior is born to you today. And two, he's lying in a manger. Your Savior comes to you lying in a manger. That's the gospel. That's the whole gospel at Christmas. That, apparently, is all that the shepherds heard. That message That's the message that sent them full of joy. That's the message that made Mary ponder in her heart. That's the message that caused wise men to come from hundreds of miles away. That's the message that caused Herod so much anxiety that he went on a killing spree. That message, that one message, your Savior is born today lying in a manger. Now, If you're not already somewhat skeptical, let me loan you a little skepticism. First, I cannot see how a child lying in the manger proves anything. There's a census happening, and so the area is already volatile. It's an impoverished community. This can't be the only child that is lying in a manger. And if it was, That doesn't necessarily prove a claim as outrageous as the one that the angel said. You would not walk by a manger, see a child lying in it, and jump to the conclusion, oh look, this must be the savior of the world. That's a leap. So for starters, to say that your savior has come and this will be a sign he's lying in a manger, seems to me to be a leap in logic. And second, is such a small act, a child lying in a manger, really that big of a deal? Should it really have caused so much commotion? Is this enough of a shock for Herod to go on a killing spree For shepherds to run wild sharing the news, for Mary to sit there and ponder, and for wise men to pack their bags and go hundreds of miles. It seems like a $10 response to a 50-cent announcement. Most of what you know about the child in the manger, they couldn't have known, not yet. So doesn't this seem like an overreaction? That's a little how it felt coming here today because I have to speak about the greatest gift of all to Americans for whom the greatest threat in the last nine months was biological, for whom in the last nine months the thing to trust was science, and whom 
are waiting in Advent for a vaccine. It's not that a child lying in the manger is insignificant, but it seems to be a little underwhelming when the other problems, the real problems, the ones that have been in our minds for most of the year seem to be so much more important. Can you think of anything you have feared more in the last nine months than a virus? To announce that the Savior is a child in a manger feels like I'm offering you a case of motor oil. Not that you don't want it, but you're kind of wondering, I wasn't exactly waiting for this, and now that you give it, what am I going to do with it? You see the problem. It's one of the reasons why Christmas is harder this year. And I don't at all minimize what science has done in so short a time. Or I should say, what God has allowed science to do in so short a time. It truly is amazing. But church, our answer to the world is that the human predicament is deeper and more complex. And so to understand the power of that message from an angel, a savior is born today to you. He is among you. He is with you. He is lying in a manger. One has to go back to Isaiah. Every now and then, God sends a person to a generation who can look further than his eyes can see. And when he looks, he sees big things happening. And when he speaks of them, he speaks words of warning and hope. And he's never just expressing himself. He's always trying to communicate a message to people that the future is coming. People like this live in the present, but they can see the future. They can see the end of all things. And so while most people are dealing only with the present, people like this have the ability to see how things end. And they believe that God has already taken something from the end and hidden it in the present. It's right there in front of us. People like Isaiah... In Isaiah's mind, there was no subject bigger than the human predicament. Only as Isaiah stepped back and looked over the centuries, not over the months, but over the centuries, he saw all of human history swinging on a single moment in a single player. The human predicament, said Isaiah, was chaos, it was bondage, it was darkness, it was 
corruption, disease, sickness. It was death. It included a biological threat, but it was so much bigger than a biological threat. The problem with humanity, said Isaiah, is that it is always subject to the powers of chaos, confusion, disorder. They're always bouncing from one drama to another. It is subject to bondage. It moves humans from one kind of addiction to another. It's blinded by darkness. It's shrouded by confusion and folly. Humans, said Isaiah, tend to think that they're doing the right thing, but when they do it, life gets worse instead of better because their problem is not rebellion, it's ignorance, it's foolishness. By doing what feels right, life still implodes. And the problem with humans, said Isaiah, is that they are subject to corruption. They are fragile. They're vulnerable. They get weaker. Their lives disintegrate instead of getting stronger. And the problem with humanity, he said, is that it always ends in death. And all of this would change, said Isaiah, on a single moment in a single player. And his name is the servant of the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 42, he said the servant of the Lord would come. There would come one who had the Spirit of God on him. And when he came, he would bring justice to the nations. He would not shout. He would not raise his voice in the streets. And yet he wouldn't quit until he brought justice to the entire world. His power would be in his words, Isaiah 49. He would be quiet, but every time he spoke, his words would be like an arrow that pierced the veneer, the armor of even self-righteous people. When he talked, he would set self-righteous people on their heels and the people that were not religious at all, they would lean in because the stuff that he said would resonate with their hearts even if their minds were fighting it. And when this person came, he would open the eyes of people that were blind. He would bust into prisons and addictions and he would set people free he would pull people out of their darkness. They would start making good decisions instead of bad ones, and their lives would get better. And when he came, he would broker this new relationship between the people and God so that God would deal with people differently and people would feel differently about God. And the thing that he brought would be new he would speak to a land where people were already religious. In fact, they were bored with religion. And yet when he spoke, he would say things that had never been said before. And when the people heard them, their hearts would start to get larger and they would sing songs of joy. 
This person said Isaiah would rise up in the morning in Isaiah chapter 50, and he would put his ear toward the heaven, verse 4, and he would hear God say things to him in private. And when he heard those things, this servant would have, here's his words, he would have a, a word for those who were weary in their souls. So even though he was surrounded by people that were tired and frustrated and angry, when he talked, his words would, be, it would just set people free. And what is this word? Isaiah chapter 51. The word is salvation. When he comes, he will speak a word of salvation. But it won't be like the salvation you've heard of. The preacher said, it would be my salvation, my righteousness, my justice. It would not be the righteousness, justice, and salvation that we've all heard about. In the last nine months, it would be something more. It would be something deeper and more thorough, and more exhaustive, if we could only find it. This salvation, said the preacher, would be a person. It would be a servant. Salvation would not be something God gave us. It would be something God is. <sighs> Salvation would be in that person. So you couldn't be saved apart from that person. Not because he wouldn't give it to you, but because it doesn't exist. It isn't a thing outside of him. It is him. And when you had him, you'd have it. So if you're looking for salvation, said the prophet, as something God is going to rain in from the top, something separate from God, something outside of you that swoops in and snatches you out of your predicament. This is not him. This one is different. This one is the end of all time. This one is God's final solution. And he's here. The end is right in front of you. Other people loved this message because they thought as soon as it was stated, it would happen. And so they waited as long as they could. And then Israel got a new owner. It wasn't Assyria. Soon it was Babylon. 
And after that, somebody else. And after that, somebody else. And after that, somebody else. Israel never got free. They just traded landlords. Somebody always owned them and their lives were getting worse instead of better. And so some just decided that all of it was fake. It wasn't true. Others just turned to the culture and they started to want the same things everybody else did. They didn't stop believing in the servant. He just wasn't as important as he used to be. Other things were more important now. And so in their conversations, they hardly referred to him. Some people took the matter into their own hands. They tried to get control. They were zealots. They figured if this is the future God wants, then this is what we have to make happen. And so they separated themselves from the public and hold themselves up in little communities. And then they would start attacking. They would get justice, but they would do it in another way. Pretty soon, nobody said anything. Not even God. For 400 years. That's a long time to wait, people, when you're waiting for something as big as salvation. Where every time you turn and look at your life or at your city, you see chaos and bondage and darkness and corruption and death. It's hard to sit on the edge of your seat and think, just wait, just wait, it's coming. So they quit. All but a few. <laughs> and I like to think that a few of them were out in the field that night. And there was another who was an unemployed carpenter who heard an angel say to him, the child that your fiance is going to conceive should be called Yahshua, Jesus. It means the Lord saves. There's that word again. When Mary was into her pregnancy and she went into Elizabeth's house, she said, my soul rejoices in God, my Savior. There's that word again. Nobody was using it. Not for 400 years. And it crops up. The night that the child is born, that's how the angel announces him. Unto you is born a Savior. There's that word again. Eight days later, when he was taken into the temple to be named, they named him Jesus, Yahshua, the Lord saves. There it is. And an old man named Simeon picked up the child, held him over his head and said, my soul rejoices. 
Mine eyes have seen your salvation. There's the word again that you've prepared in the sight of all people. There was an old woman in the courts wandering around waiting. It says for the deliverance, parentheses, the salvation. There it is of Israel. And when she heard the commotion, she started to preach. She's like in her 80s. In fact, it's striking that this word which disappeared for 400 years suddenly comes back in a wave. It is everywhere at the birth of Jesus Christ. And what's shocking is that after the birth of Christ, one has to look hard in all four gospels to find a time where Jesus is associated with salvation. You would think everyone was calling him savior His whole life, in fact, almost no one was calling him Savior after the time he was born. It's almost as if God decided that this moment, this arrival of a Savior was such a huge event, he needed to put the word in a lot of people's mouths. But the Savior, he said, would not come in the usual way. He would come in a manger. And can I suggest that the manger as a sign was never intended to be a proof? It's not evidence of anything. That's not what signs are in the Bible. Signs in the Bible are clues. They're symbols. They're a small gesture that when you see it, you wonder, what does that mean? It's like a crack in the wall between earth and heaven. So when you see a sign, You're never so much to use it as proof that God exists. Of course God exists. You're supposed to get up next to it. You're not supposed to use it. You're supposed to study it. Because if you sit next to a sign long enough, like a prophet, you can see the end right in front of you. So all of this raises the question, if you sit and stare at a manger, what might you learn about salvation that is different than what you thought it was? It's a question I'll ask you to answer in a few moments. It's worth a really good discussion. What does the manger and an infant in it say about God's salvation that most surprises you. I would not have expected that. May I point out just two things quickly? You'll have more. One is that a manger is not the way out of this world. It's the way into it. 
And so salvation as God offers it is never an escape. It's a joining. When God saves you through Jesus Christ, he doesn't get you out. He comes in. He lives in a trailer park. He loses his job. He contracts the virus. He gets dumped, divorced, cheated on. That's your God. If you were waiting for the crisis to end before you said you were saved, you're waiting too long. If God has broken into your mess, into your addiction, your bondage, your foolishness, your chaos, you are already being saved. Second, the manger is not an improvement. It's something entirely new. It comes at the end of labor, struggle, pain. And yet, it's that labor and the struggle and the pain that actually produces the salvation. Some months ago, I was in the Minor Prophets, and I hit Micah chapter 4, verse 10, where the Lord says to the people of Israel, still waiting on the brink of salvation, when is God going to bring salvation? And the prophet said to his people, writhe in agony like a woman in labor. I thought to myself, that is a crazy way to think about salvation, unless it is in the labor that the salvation is actually formed. Hard as it is, it brings to the mother an honor, a name, a quality, a gift that she would not have had apart from the struggle. So the prophet continued and said to his people, for now you must leave the city and go into the desert and to camp. You'll be transient. You'll be a nomad. But then he said, there in Babylon, I will redeem you. There, I will save you. Twice, he said, it's there. It's there. That's where I'll do it. And the note I made to myself was, God's salvation comes in Babylon, not apart from it. If you're waiting for something to end, if you're waiting for something to be easy because God is doing it, you have a different salvation. This one has broken into the chaos of your now. 
and is meeting you in it every day. And everything that gets on you, all of the crap gets on him at the same time. Only what's coming out of this is something even better. No, it's something new. It's something you can't invent, something you can't do, and it only comes through the struggle. I don't know what it is that you're struggling with this morning, what you're trying to get away from, what you wish God would just do with a miracle. Just deliver me out of it, and then I'll be saved. I don't know what that is for you. But my message is that you have the right Savior, but the wrong salvation. The one that he brings is in a manger, not on the throne. It's not in a lab. It's in a manger. It's small, but it grows. It's vulnerable, but it's subversive. <laughs> when it gets hold of you, it just rewires your whole insides. And all of you is saved, not just your health. What God offers the people of God at Christmas this year is what he offers every year. Only this year, we've been aware of how vulnerable and fragile we are. We know that we can be God, every one of us. And yet, our salvation is from God. Maybe God has already saved you from, oh man, if we could hear the stories. Maybe um, this afternoon you should tell them, you should tell the people around you, what is it that God has saved me from? What do I wish he would still save me from? And am I willing to wait for that? Am I, am I still wanting it or have I quit? Like some, have I just drifted off onto other interests? Oh, that would be nice, of course, but this is what I really want in my life. Or like others, have I tried to take control? If that's what God wants, then I'll make it happen. What is it that you want God to save you from? And what would it look like if you could wait? On the edge of your seat, it's going to happen. But only God can do it. On the screen, I'll put questions that I'd like you to wrestle down. I think they will help you with how simple and yet profound this message is. Your Savior comes to you lying in a manger. Lord, first, for every deliverance that you've brought to people in this room, we are so grateful. Every time one of us was confused and there was a ray of clarity just coming into the darkness, 
thank you every time someone helped us bring order to the chaos. Every time you healed our disease, oh, it was nothing we said. I had it too. And we lived. Thank you. This was not luck. This was you. And yet there are things we still want to be saved from. From the tendency to run ourselves into confusion or to a frenzy. That we cannot say no as easily as we say yes to everything. From our tendency to trade landlords one addiction for another. Our propensity for folly, confusion, ignorance. We do what we want and we hate what we get. From our corruption, our dis-ease, our brokenness. Oh God, like the prophet, the end has come and we want to see it. We want to enjoy him, present, fully present, and yet coming. In your great name.